Let's just pray together before we begin, shall we? Father, we thank you for the great privilege of knowing that we are the redeemed children of the Lord. Father, we thank you out of all of this world. You have seen us in our need, and you've come with the answer to our need. We thank you that answer was wonderfully provided through the work of Jesus Christ. It is to him that we look. He is the great saviour of our soul. Father, I pray indeed this morning that you will really show us the path ahead, Lord. Father, that you will really convict us about the need for evangelism. And that, Father, we should see one of the great purposes that you have given to us is that we should be witnesses to all you have done on this earth. Father, I would ask for the Spirit of the Lord to be heavily upon us. Father, to anoint my lips and to anoint our ears and our understanding that we should receive a spirit of enlightenment, of illumination, the spirit that only you can give. Father, please give us a burden for souls, even this morning. Father, that indeed we should see that those around us need to hear about Jesus. And Father, show us what place it should have in the overall working of the body of Jesus Christ on this earth. Father, please therefore bless us and guide us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I've been speaking about the priorities of a local fellowship. And if you remember, we've seen that the first priority that a local fellowship has is to be committed 100% to the Lord. And that is the thing that we constantly need to hear, that Jesus is the head of the body, and he therefore has to be the central point and the focus of everything that a church does. Any church that gets its eyes off Christ and onto others or onto the work or anything like that must fail eventually. Our first priority is to praise and worship the Lord so that we love him with all of our heart. Once that is established, you can then go on to the other priorities in the body of Christ. And you remember the second priority that I outlined was our commitment 100% to one another. And the third priority, then, was our 100% commitment to the world Jesus died to save. And we have reached, in this series of talks, the, the place where we can now begin the third of the priorities. That is, the commitment of a fellowship to the world Jesus died to save. And there will be two talks in this section. The first today is on the subject of evangelism. The second, which is next time, will be on the subject of what our responsibility is to do good in the world, even to people who are unbelievers. So evangelism is the subject today. May we start off immediately by turning to our Bibles, and let's go to Luke and chapter 19 and verse 10. This is a lovely little verse. I think it was one of Spurgeon's uh, favorite verses. And here you have Jesus speaking to Zacchaeus. And in this verse, he just says this, Luke 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And here is Christ's definition concerning those who are unbelievers, those who are not born again. He looks at them and he says they are lost as far as God is concerned. Basically by that what he means is this, that they have at the moment a life without hope 
because they don't have Christ. And they have an eternity separated from God and separated from all the blessings that God has made available through Jesus Christ. They have a future, first of all, in hell and then in the lake of fire. And much of the torment of the lake of fire will be this, that they are cut off from the love of God which was so bountiful, so wide as an ocean, and so free that they could have enjoyed it. This is the definition that Jesus gives about those who are unbelievers. They are lost. The believers are called the redeemed ones. That is, Christ has bought us out, bless his wonderful name. But the world outside is lost. The tragedy for them is that very, very few of them know the position that they find themselves in. Here are people who are in a terrifying position and who have an, an horrific future, and yet most of them carry on their lives as if nothing at all is going to befall them. Behind that, of course, is the enemy. Satan is determined that he will keep these blinded people in darkness so that the blessed light of the gospel won't shine in their hearts. And we have the job of trying to break through the darkness that they are in, trying to break through the uh, ignorance that they are in, that the blessed gospel of Christ can be preached to them. These unbelievers are seen in the Bible as the hard soil or the hard path at the side of a field. And you remember it's been trodden down so much that when the seed is scattered on it, the seed won't go into it. The seed just lies on the surface. And they hear the gospel message and they just reject it. And in the parable of the sower, it is then said that the birds of the air come and they start pecking away at this seed. And uh, Jesus interprets that and says that the devil and his angels come and they just remove the seed very quickly, lest the unbeliever should feel that anything is wrong at all. I suppose in our day, we have more people in ignorance about the future than at any other time. You see, in former ages, people had time to sit and contemplate the future. They could uh, sit and think, what is going to happen? And they'd heard, many of them, the word of God, that it is appointed unto men once to die, but then comes judgment. In other words, every person on the face of this earth has an appointment with death, and after the appointment with death, they have an appointment with God. And many, many people in former generations were born again simply when they realized that death was next on the agenda. In our day... Satan has so arranged it that people are lulled into a false sense of security. You imagine those people who in this coming week are going to die and go into a lost eternity, who today will spend most of their day after they've washed their car watching TV. And there is TV blinking at them, and it lulls them into a false sense of security. So that here, when the Holy Spirit is trying to preach the gospel to them, they have this blinking eye on all the time, trying to blot out all conviction. And they get into a film, which unfortunately comes to an end after only an hour and a half, or two hours, or whatever it is. But then there's something else that they can duck into. Anything, as long as the gospel is not allowed to be preached to them. Think of all the old people who really have a very few years ahead. And they're stuck in front of their TVs. And there comes Coronation Street, and there comes Crossroads, and all the other serials. Uh, and uh, they give the impression that, of course, well, this serial's going to go on forever and ever and ever. I must say, I've watched one or two, and I felt that during the half hour they were on. But, uh, 
but the serial gives the impression that it's never actually going to come to an end. I understand that the third Dan Archer has just died. And now they have to decide, do we get another Dan Archer, or do we allow him to die? Now, many of those people who have been listening think it's been one Dan Archer right the way through. And so they're lulled into this false sense of security. On the radio, um, they, are too, they are also lulled into this false sense of security. There are people around, you know, who go everywhere with the radio on. In the car, you know, whenever, whatever they do, as soon as they get up, the radio switched on, loud music, anything, as long as they blot out the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see? And on the radio comes the same old message. Look, you're all right, folks. Stay as you are. Enjoy yourself. God will look after it all. Doesn't matter. Uh, just last week, I understand a certain actor died. This man was a, a playboy. You know, he'd had three wives, and he'd left his third wife. And uh, he really was a typical unregenerate. And uh, suddenly he developed multiple, multiple sclerosis, and his third wife kindly took him back and nursed him. And he died. And uh, Douglas Bader was actually asked to say a few words. And he said, well, what a terrible disease for such a fun-loving man, you know. But he's in a better place now. And then he said on the radio, Douglas Bader, who knows nothing, he said he's, in a much, he's much happier now than he was this time last week. And people who are listening to that think, oh, well, there's the message, you know. As soon as death comes, it doesn't matter what you do, uh, you'll be in a better place. And they're lulled into this false sense of security. The thing that really upsets me is when I go to funerals of unregenerate people. And I know this man has rejected the gospel. And there you get apostate preachers. You know, heretics standing at the front. And what do they say? This man is now in heaven. And all you folk, don't you worry, you're going to heaven as well. Those of you who have been to a funeral that I've conducted will know that's not what I say. All I know is that when death hits a particular family, people are very open to the gospel, you know. And it's our responsibility always to preach the gospel when they're low. And when we can get in, you have to do it in love, but you've got to make the issues perfectly clear. But you see, the devil is blinding the minds of people all the way around. Well, we are those who've got to jot them out of this type of ignorance that they are in. And we talk about things like death coming up, like hell and the reality of hell, like accountability, culpability, sin has to be paid for. Are your righteousnesses enough to get you through to heaven? These are the type uh, this is the type of message that we actually preach. Okay, so there are the lost. If we could see that they are lost, and if we could only agree with what Jesus said about them, I think most Christians would have a new burden on their hearts for evangelism. I think I expanded this on my tape called The Great White Throne. But do you know, your loved ones are going to an eternity without Christ. The milkman is going to an eternity without Christ unless he's believed. Your bank manager, rich that he may be, is going to an eternity without Christ. And we've got to really get this clearly into our thinking if we are going to be the evangelist that God has called us to be. All right, let's have a look at this verse again. Verse 10, we've dealt with the word lost. Look what it says in the beginning. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And here you get a glimpse of the tremendous burden that God has for souls. Do you know it's said in the Bible that uh, God desires all men everywhere to be saved? That is the burden on his heart. 
And we've got to see that God is anxious that they should be saved. But the work of evangelism is primarily God's. If we really understand that it's primarily God's, this will save us from a lot of errors. Here you, say, you see that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of Man, he has come to seek and to save. That's also confirmed in a lovely way. Could we just turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and verse 47? And remember, this is after the ascension of Christ, or the time that he was taken up. Verse 47, talking about all the converts that the early church had gained. Look what it says. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Can you see that? It's the Lord who seeks and saves. Not one of us has the power to save anyone, but he has the power. And every time a person is saved, it is the Lord who has saved them. Bless his wonderful name. Now, a chap at this conference came up to me. He was saved on the first night. He put his arms around me, gave me a big hug, and said, thank you, Roger, for changing my life. And I just said, you mean, praise the Lord for changing your life, brother. And he said, well, you know what I mean. And I do know what he means. We've got to get that firmly into our thinking. It is not us that leads anyone to Christ. It is the Lord himself who leads people to himself. That's the son involved in this, but the father's involved as well. Uh, keep your finger in the place. I'll be coming back to Acts. Let's go to John chapter 6. Let's see the father's role in all of this. And verse 44. This is very important. We've got to understand this. John 6, 44, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And on that last day, it is the work of Christ that raises you up. But listen, it is the Father that drew you to himself. The Father did it. So the Father has been involved in your salvation. In verse 65, it's repeated. He said, therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. And this is the good news. Father wants all to be saved. So the Father is drawing everyone on the face of this earth. Whether they accept or whether they reject, the drawing is there and the Father is doing it. So that's the Father involved, the Son involved, but the Holy Spirit's involved as well. Let's go to John 16 and see the Holy Spirit's involvement at this point. You'll understand why I'm emphasizing this in just a moment. Unless you get this clear, you will make fundamental errors in your thinking about evangelism and your thinking about your role in evangelism. I'm going to begin verse 7 here, John 16, 7 and onwards. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient, which means it is for your advantage that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, this is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, who is it that does the reproving? Us? No. It's him that does it. 
It's the Holy Spirit who reproves the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, in case you misunderstand those, it's then expanded. And let's just have a look at these. Verse 9, of sin, because they believe not on me. Now, to hear some preachers speak about sin, they wouldn't have put that. They would have said, of sin, because you live such a wretched life. Your lives are terrible, full of sin. You've got to be saved. That's not the emphasis here. The emphasis, of course, in eternity is this. Not sin, but the emphasis, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, or have you not? That's the emphasis. Are your names in the Lamb's Book of Life, or are they not? That is the important issue here. And this is actually a definition of the unforgivable sin. There is only one sin which Christ um, cannot retrieve you from. And that is if you reject him as the answer to your problems. That's the only one. His uh, laying down of his life was infinite. There is no sin that you could commit that is not covered, except, as I've said, the rejection of the answer. I suppose it's uh, rather like having a doctor who can solve every illness except the one of you not coming to see him. He can't ever help you. And that's exactly what he said here. And this doctor says, of course I can help you. You know, you've got Lassa fever, or you've got such and such a disease. But listen, unless you're going to come, I can't help you. And that's exactly the point here of sin, because they reject the answer to sin. Sin is no longer a problem. No, it's not. Christ is the answer to every sin, if you will receive it. What think ye of Christ is the issue? Why is this called the unforgivable sin or the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit's preaching this in the world. The Holy Spirit comes along and says to everyone on the face of this earth, unless you believe, unless you believe, unless you receive Christ as your Savior, you cannot be saved. They turned around and said, you're a liar. That's what they say to him. They blaspheme his very character. You are telling me a lie. I think I can get to heaven on my own works. So they're calling him a liar. So there we are, of sin, because they believe not on me. Next, verse 10, the Holy Spirit's also speaking of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. And what is this righteousness? Well, Christ could not have gone to the Father unless his death on the cross had been efficacious, unless it had been successful. And so here, the fact that Jesus is now seated in heaven shows that his work on the cross was absolutely perfect. You've got your finger, I hope, in Acts. Let's just see that. If you go to Acts and chapter 3. Acts. It's not Acts 3, it's Acts 2. I beg your pardon. Acts chapter 2, 23 and 24. And this is the message preached on the day of Pentecost. Talking about Jesus... Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should behold an of it. In other words, his uh, sacrifice covered everything that God needed covered. And so he was raised up because of, of uh, the completed work. And so that's the message that's preached. And this means the Holy Spirit preaches the whole length of the gospel. He preaches the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. The last one, verse 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. 
And, and the Holy Spirit preaches the good news that at the cross, Satan himself was defeated. Let's see that in Colossians and chapter 2. And notice here it is at the cross that it occurred. In Colossians chapter 2, I read from verse 13 down to 50. Colossians 2, 13 onwards, And you, being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, that's the extent of the gospel which, notice, the Holy Spirit is preaching. It is God who takes the main responsibility for evangelism on the face of this earth. We've got to understand that. Sometimes you hear people who ask, well, they ask me questions like this. Roger, what happens to those who've never heard the gospel? You know, what's going to happen on the judgment day? And I turn around and I say, there aren't any. And they say, oh, come on. Roger, that's ridiculous. And then I say, any man who is positive to God will receive gospel information no matter where they live. And you should look at, the, at their faces. The total look of unbelief. Oh, come, come. What they really mean is this. Not that the gospel hasn't reached them. What they mean is no European or American min missionary has reached them yet. Or perhaps the missionary organization that they belong to hasn't sent any package of tracts to that area. So the gospel message hasn't got through. In other words, God is absolutely limited to us, you know. You know, and the gospel won't be preached. It doesn't matter how much people are positive towards God, they'll never hear it unless a European minister actually goes and preaches to them. That is absolute nonsense. And let me tell you this, that if no one else is available, an angel, an angel will be sent to preach the gospel. And if they're not available, God himself will preach the gospel. And this is why missionaries will often tell you the most marvelous tales. I have a friend who is a missionary in Africa. His name is David Newington. Once seen, never forgotten. He always wears a bow tie. Do you know David Newington? Hands up if you know David Newington. Yes, a most amazing man. Well, he actually said this. He said he reached part of Africa... And as far as he knew, no missionary had reached there before, and he came into a clearing, and there was a whole tribe of Africans having a communion service. He couldn't believe it. Do you remember he, he told us this? I, remember, I was at the same meeting these two were at. Having a communion service, and he went up to them, and he said, who are you worshipping? And they said, we don't know his name. And they, he said, well, tell me something about him. And they said, well, we used to be animists. We used to worship the spirits in the forest. But then, somehow we received a revelation that there was one who had created the forest. And by the way, Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus is the one who created everything. And so they had started worshipping the one who created the forest. And God had sovereignly spoken to them, so they were even having a communion service in the middle of this jungle. Marvelous. And when they, he preached Christ to them, to a man they received Christ. To a man. Why? Because they were already born again. And as soon as they heard the name of Jesus, they said, that's the fellow. That's the chap. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us from such idiocy, such um, blatant arrogance, 
as to think that, in fact, European and American missionaries are the only ones who can preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit preaches the gospel, and that means if a man is living incognito among the penguins on the South Pole, the minute he comes positive to God, God is going to preach the gospel to him. Another missionary friend of mine told me that a, he met a whole group, I think it was in South America, a whole group of people who were born again. And they said, an angel came. And we sat around this angel and he preached the gospel to us. And he told us everything. And when the missionaries started preaching to them, they said, we know that. And it had all been done. Do you remember that little story that Pastor Vernbrand uh, tells? How he uh, was on a train in Russia. And he was traveling along and he met a sculptor on the train. And the sculptor looked at Pastor Vernbrand and said, uh, you know him, don't you? And Pastor Vernbrand, of course, couldn't believe his ears. He said, who, who do you mean? He said, you know him. And Pastor Vernbrand said, well, who? And the chap said, I don't know what he's called, but I call him the one who made the thumb. And Pastor Vernbrand said, why do you call him that? He said, well, I was sculpting a statue of Lenin one day, and as I was carving the thumb, I suddenly realized, well, look at all the effort I'm putting into carving this still stone thumb. Now I look at my thumb, it's incredible to me that that could just have evolved. He said, no. He said, someone must have created my thumb. And so he said, I don't know what his name is, but he's the god of the thumb. <laughs> and that was the name of Jesus to that man. And, and Wormbrand said, oh, Jesus, is that his name, he said. Oh, yes. And the man was born again. Do you see, we've got to save ourselves from this arrogance that comes into us, you see. It is the Lord who preaches the gospel. When one day I deal with the subject of heathenism and why we have heathen countries around, uh, we'll go into this in more detail. But the Holy Spirit is the one who preaches. All right, having said that, what role then do we play in this? Because it's quite obvious that God's will for every one of us is that we preach the gospel as well. Matthew 28, Mark 16 are quite clear. We have to go and preach the gospel, and I love it, to every creature on the earth, not just to people, to the plants in your garden, to your cat, especially to your cat, may I say, to all the other creatures that are around and really show forth the glorious news of the gospel of Christ. What is the role? Well, the role we have is that of being a witness. Sometimes evangelism is called witnessing. And we must play the role of witnesses. Now, let's understand this. What is a witness? Go in your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 1 and verse 1. Here's a definition of a witness. 1 John, chapter 1. One John one one. Now begin reading it from verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. And a witness is someone who's heard something and seen something and therefore knows something, isn't it? I have been a witness in a court case. And they said, will you be a witness for the prosecution? I said, I'm delighted to be a witness for the prosecution. I saw it. 
You know, I know he's guilty. I saw it with my own eyes. And a witness is one who actually testifies of those things which he knows. The word witness is actually a courtroom term, isn't it? All right? You are a witness in a court. And the interesting thing is this, and it's something that, oddly enough, I've never heard a preacher actually preach. It's this, that in the New Testament, Christ is seen as being on trial before an unbelieving world. For the last 2,000 years, the work of Jesus Christ has been on trial on this earth. And unbelievers have to assess, is this man who he says he is, or is he not? And that's the trial that's been going on. Christ is in the dock. Now, in the normal courtroom situation, you have, of course, a lawyer for the defense and a lawyer for the prosecution. Now, it's been the Holy Spirit who's been the lawyer for the defense. And the lawyer has been saying to everyone in the world, Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is the Christ. The devil is, of course, the lawyer for the prosecution, and the devil says he is a liar. It's not true. There is no salvation in Christ. In fact, he didn't even exist. That's what the lawyer for the prosecution actually says. Now, we are those who are called as witnesses for the defense lawyer. It's the Holy Spirit, you know, who presents the case. We are the witnesses in the case. Now, if you get that clear then it relieves a lot of the tension from your shoulders in this. And we have to stand up and we have to say, let me tell you that what the Holy Spirit is saying to you is true. And we are those who, with our mouths and with our lives, witness to the reality of what Christ said and what he did. With our mouths, of course, we have to testify. And this means going up to our milkman when the time is right. We pray for him first, actually saying to him, I just want to tell you what Jesus did for me. Right? Tell him that Jesus was the one who saved you from the appalling past that you had. You know, from this path of uh, ignorance and wastefulness. And he was the one who saved you from your sins. And he's the one who's transformed your life and now has provided eternal life for everyone. The Holy Spirit has already spoken to that man, probably. And you will come along and you'll just add a little bit of witness. The Holy Spirit is actually saying to him, look, it's not just me that's saying this. I'll introduce you to someone who actually has met Christ. And along you come, and you're standing in the, the box at that time, and you are saying, I testify that what the Holy Spirit is saying is right at this particular point, you see? And so we are witnesses for Christ. And this is good news for us because it means this, that God can use any word that you speak. Some people think you have to be a theologian to preach the gospel correctly. You don't have to be a theologian because the Holy Spirit will use whatever you say. You don't have to worry about it, you see? And you may find that all you've got is the joy of the Lord. And you go up and say, look, I just got to tell you, I'm thrilled with Jesus. And they'll go home to their flat and the Holy Spirit will be saying to them, well, he was a nice chap, wasn't he? Ah, he was thrilled with Jesus. Yeah, fancy being thrilled with Jesus. Well, is it possible for me to be thrilled with Jesus? And even though you have simply muttered some exclamation to him, the Holy Spirit will be using it when he gets home. Of course, the devil will be there as well, saying, oh, he's a fanatic, put it up your head. You know, you don't want to be like him, do you? And this will be the battle that goes on. Our responsibility, funnily enough, is not to see the results. Our responsibility is simply to be effective and true witnesses where we have the opportunity. Some people are led by the Lord to go to India. 
God called certain people as missionaries to do that. But all of us are missionaries on our own doorsteps. You see? And we have to be faithful in our witnessing. In heaven, God is not going to say about evangelism, well, you've been very successful because you led a thousand people to the Lord. You see? Whether they come to Christ is up to them, of course. God will say to you, you've been faithful because you have been a true witness. Moses preached for 120 years without a convert, as far as we know. And yet he was faithful. It was the evilness of the generation that he was in who, who caused the rejection of his message. So we are witnesses and we preach. I do think that we should have an understanding of our salvation. I do think we should use the word of God. John 3.16, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. If you don't know those scriptures, I would say you're not being a very good witness or evangelist, right? And God wants you to start using the Word of God, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, you see? So it's, first of all, through our words that we witness. But do you know, words are not enough in all of this. It's got to be through our lives that we witness. Because very often, it is our lives that put unbelievers off. Your life either makes your message believable or it makes it unbelievable. It's one or t'other. Now, to see that, let's go to uh, Peter as we're at the end of the Bible here. Let's go to 1 Peter. First of all, 2, chapter 2. 1 Peter, chapter 2, and verse 15. Here is the issue of your life. And just this little verse, and then into 1 Peter 3. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, make sure in your life you show forth all the glories of Christ, because that's the quickest way to stop the people who are against the gospel message. Because people will say, well, you may think his message is wrong, but boy, he is happy, isn't he? He is content, isn't he? And that will speak louder than your words. Go through into chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 and 17. All right, here we are. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with, fear, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may, may be ashamed that falsely ac accuse your good conversation or manner of life in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And this is saying that if they throw away your message, at least let your life preach the gospel to them. This is why I would say this, that if you are living a selfish, worldly, self-centered, disturbed life, you are not actually being the witness that God wants you to be to the people around. And the great tragedy of this is, you're not only disqualifying your own witness, you are disqualifying the witness of other people too. Because I have learned this about unbelievers, they may meet five wonderful believers whose lives show the glory of Christ, but if they meet one who doesn't, that's the one they remember. And this is why our Christian life involves sacrifice. And I would say to you all, 
realize that the key of evangelism is sacrifice to self. You have to be prepared to put aside that which influences you, that which affects you, that which is a just cause for you. Lay it aside for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything in our lives must be geared to show the unbeliever the glories, not of our life, but of Christ in us. And therefore, we have to realize that this is the prime responsibility. I think I talked a little time ago about the woman who took a non-Christian along to a sort of catering do in a certain fellowship. And this woman was a non-Christian, and the Christian woman thought, uh, well, it would be wonderful to show her how Christians work together. You know, the singing and the happiness and everything that goes on. Hallelujah, see my faith. And uh, to show how people flow together. And this non-Christian came along, was working away in the kitchen. And suddenly, two of the women had a stand-up argument. Two of the Christian women. And they argued, and it was more vicious than anything the woman had seen in the world. That was the end of the gospel, as far as that woman was concerned. She said, if that's the way Christians behave, I don't want to know. Of course, the Holy Spirit keeps on, uh, you know, preaching the gospel to her. But you've damaged that particular person. And you are not in a position to take that responsibility. And this is why we've got to realize their whole eternity stands at stake and their eternity is more important than your little cause of righteousness, you know? You've got to see that you've got to present the whole message of Christ through your life. This is why we as married couples, if for nothing else, have to get our marriages right. For our marriages have got to preach the gospel. This is why in your homes you must deal with that which is wrong in your home. For the gospel's sake. That's why in a fellowship, we must deal with that which is wrong for for the witness's sake that people may see Christ in us. And so we preach the gospel. And do you know the world consists of many, many different types of people? And that's why in the body of Christ, you've got many, many different types of people. That's why a healthy fellowship ought to have people from every walk of life. You should have rich and you should have poor. You should have professional and unprofessional. Why? Because our job is to be a net to catch as many of these people as we can. And I would say to you this, don't ever compare yourself with one another and say, I wish I was like them, or I wish I was like them. Listen, if we were all of one type, we wouldn't reach the people we have the job of reaching. And no matter where you are, you may be in a factory, you may be unemployed and on the dole, You may be a teacher. God wants you to reach people for Christ where you are. Right? And therefore, be content with what you've got. If you're a roundsman, you perhaps have more opportunity to reach people for Jesus Christ. But don't let the devil use it. This so often happens in fellowships. You know, a group of people think, oh, well, you know, they're not like me. And so they start thinking, well, they don't, I don't know, they're not really like me, and they ought to be more like me. And before long, they're not coming along because they think, well, there's no one I can identify with in this place. Look, if there is no one for you to identify with, get some people saved and soon you'll have plenty to identify with. That's it. Pray for these people and be a witness unto them. This is our responsibility. It's very, very important. The other thing I would say on this is don't be afraid of just a little bit of witness. Because often, a little bit of witness can do an amazing amount of good. I actually worked it out this morning, you know. 
I worked out that if one Christian went to one town and led in one year one person to the Lord, see why I'm a mathematician, can't you, right? At the end of that year, there'll be two people. If they then led someone else to the Lord each, at the end of the second year, there are four. Do you know, by 15 years' time, you'd have over 16,000 believers just from that. And that's just leading one person to the Lord per year. That's all. And we've got to be prepared to do just that and to be anxious to do it as God's witnesses. I know that uh, a certain public school asked me to go and speak. And I really prayed about this. And the chap said, look, Roger, there aren't many of us. I should warn you. There aren't many of us. And I thought, oh, Lord, you know, I'm so busy. I just don't know whether I've got the time. And as I prayed, the Lord said, you go along there. And I went along there, and there was just a little group of 10 there. And we preached the gospel, and I'll tell you, they really got saved. They really got filled with the Spirit and on fire for Christ. Today, they've scattered among the universities of Britain, right? There's Cambridge, Nottingham, Exeter, all the way around. And there, they've been effective in their witness among the students. And some of them have led revivals in their own universities. It's not numbers that counts. You know, it's quality that counts, isn't it? Can we just see that in Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8. And first of all, let's begin in verse 5. I think in a certain book, it is written that D.L. Moody was led to the Lord just by someone... Um, giving him a tract in the chemist shop. And the fellow just handed a tract to this, uh, to this chap, D.L. Moody, and then left. And uh, D.L. Moody took the tract home, read it, of course, was wonderfully saved. And thousands of people, tens of thousands, came to the Lord through D.L. Moody. Isn't that amazing? Just because one chap in the chemist shop handed a tract to D.L. Moody. Here, in verse 5, we see Philip in the city of Samaria. And do you see what he say? it says? Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and what did he preach? Christ to them. That was his whole message. And if you read on, there was a tremendous revival that occurred in the city of Samaria. And as far as we know, hundreds were saved. There were miracles being done on every side. And Philip must have been thrilled with what God was doing through him. But look at verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go towards the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. And do you remember here that this one man gets saved? Now, Philip might have said, Lord, what are you doing? This tremendous revival is occurring in Samaria, and you're taking me down into the desert for one man, to lead one man to Christ. What's this about? And if Philip had known, he might very well have said, I'm not going, Lord, I'm too busy, you know, up in this revival that's going on. And then I've got to go to Antioch to tell everybody about the revival that's happening in Samaria. And so he might have, have thought, but he didn't. In obedience to the Holy Spirit, he went and he preached to this one man. And do you know, history shows something wonderful. This man went home. He led his queen to the Lord, and he led the whole of Ethiopia to the Lord, so that Ethiopia became the first Christian country in Africa. 
We've got to be led by the Spirit and not just go for the big meetings. Do you see, our individual responsibility, therefore, is to do what we can do where we are and be open to the Lord as to where he's telling us to go. You may lead your milkman to the Lord. You have no idea what could happen after leading your milkman to the Lord. He may be able to contact loads of people. Your postman, whoever it is, whatever situation you are in, you can start praying now for that person to be saved, and you can start witnessing to him. Now, all that I've said so far is individual responsibility. You must overcome shyness. You must overcome embarrassment and let the zeal of the Lord speak through you. Seeing that they are lost and on their way to hell is one of the ways to really uh, see urgency coming in your own ministry. All right, having spoken about individual responsibility, fellowships also have a responsibility in this. Because if evangelism is to be effective, there has to be a base from which to work. I don't have to say this to us because most of us have had experience of this. We have seen major evangelistic outreaches have some fruit initially, and yet after only one year, you count round and the number of people who've stayed with the Lord is minimal. Some of these campaigns, which have cost thousands of pounds, you've ended up with probably four Christians who are still going on with the Lord after a year has, has gone past. Why is that? Very often it's because these people who are thrilled with the Lord are then put in churches or fellowships where, quite honestly, they don't like what's going on. And they sit there, and after a while, they think, this is so boring, I'm just not having any more of this. Or they see such disturbance and such disunity and such hatred in the midst of the body of Christ that they say, if that's how Christians carry on, I don't want to know. I am going to have Christianity by myself, which is an impossibility, actually, but they think that that's how to do it. And do you know, often I don't blame them when I see what they've been put into. We have responsibility as a fellowship in evangelism. Let's just go to the Gospel of John. John 13, and let's just see the two things that fellowships must grow into. John 13, and verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And this is not loving the lovable, this is loving the unlovable and those who've hurt you, because we'd hurt him, and yet he loved us. Then it goes on, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It doesn't say here that by this shall all men know that you are believers, that you love one another. The great tragedy about this is that there are all too few believers who are disciples. A disciple is one who really does his master's will. There are loads of believers around, but all just a handful of disciples, really. A disciple is one who is going to say, Lord, if you love these folk, I'm going to love these folk. That's it. So love must be one of the things needed in a local fellowship for evangelism. And then over in John 17, you also then have unity if you go to verse 20. Here it says, 
Neither pray I for these alone, and this is Jesus' prayer, the Lord's prayer, as I call it, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And it's our unity and our love one for the other that is a powerful force for evangelism. How many people in our own fellowship have we seen saved when they came to their first meeting? They just came in. They looked around. They said, wow, these people love the Lord. Wow, these people love one another. Wow, these people seem to get on with one another. And they've just come from the Labour Club or the Conservative Association or the SDP group or whatever group. You are liberals. Or they've just been the Mother's Institute. Sorry, Women's Institute, I beg your pardon. <laughs> you can see I never go along. And they've come along, and they've seen the bickering that goes on. And yet, they come into a fellowship which is trained in this, and they see the love and the unity. It's a powerful force for preaching the gospel. And this is why, in fellowship life, very often, there is a gap between it's the establishment of a fellowship and the day when evangelism begins in a massive way. Do you know, in the early days of our fellowship, I used to bemoan to the Lord sometimes. I used to say, Lord, at university, I saw lots of people saved after I've witnessed to them. And now the numbers seem to be decreasing. What is this, Lord? And the Lord just gave me a picture of an army. And he said this, you know, an army is there to fight the enemy. But it's no use getting people and saying, are you a soldier? Yes, I just joined up. Great. Here's a gun. Right? And you give them a gun, say, right, go and get them, boy. You know, because if that happened, there'd be a rabble, wouldn't there? What do you do with people who've joined the army and are out to defeat the enemy? Well, you give them a year of square bashing. And all they do, they march round this square, round and round the same square, round and round and round and round and round and round and round. They peel potatoes, you see? That's part of their training, okay? And the very important part. Then they get used to the sergeant major shouting at them, you know? I don't shout very often at you lot, but that's what they do. And they write home, mummy! They shout at me here, you know, please, will you buy me out? And that's the type of thing. And here's this sergeant major shouting, he's rude to them, you are a lot, and all the rest, you see? And do you know, some people, I heard someone say, oh, it's terrible that soldiers should go through all this. It's a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. What it means is this, when the battle comes, even though shells are going off, even though people are after you, when you hear your sergeant major say, Left wheel, you'll go left instantly. You won't think about it. Why? Because you've done it for the last 10 years. And you've seen, when you've disobeyed his instruction, exactly the mouthful that you've got. It trains you. And God said to me that fellowships have to be trained. And what do we have to do? We have to learn how to praise the Lord. Every meeting, we praise the Lord. We have to learn how to rejoice in God despite the circumstances. Every meeting's about it. Every prophecy seems to be about it. You have to learn eventually that when the Spirit tells you to do something, you do it. And yes, sir, is the attitude that should come forth. You do it and you do it. You learn how to love people. How does God do that? He brings in some people that you can't love. And you're stuck with them. You're both in the same fellowship. And there they are in every meeting. There they are. What's God doing? It's the square bashing of love. And then these people, gradually, you'll find God gets you into unity. Now, in our own fellowship, though we've seen many saved over the years, we've been square bashing. What for? Ready 
for the time when we will see people saved by tens and by hundreds. You can't deal with large numbers of people who are converted unless you've got a base to go from, can you? That's what God is building up. This is why the local area groups are so vital and so important. In those local area groups, you have people who are loving one another, who are dwelling in unity with one another, and who are keen to evangelize. The day is coming when people will be saved through those groups, and they will be, the people who are saved will be covered by those arms of love extended from the local area. And that local area will see those people through, as well as other people, of course, with ministries in the body of Christ. When a new believer has just, been, has just come along, what have you got to do? First of all, you've got to teach him, haven't you? That's the first thing. And to teach him, you've got to know something up here. You've got to have some savvy in this gray matter. You really must. The second thing you've got to do is admonish him. Young believers don't like this terribly much. What it means is saying to him, excuse me, brother, but a Christian doesn't act like that. That's how the world acts. A Christian doesn't, you see? Then you have to be an example to him. It's no good saying to him, oh, uh, I don't think, by the way, you ought to do that. He says, well, I was passing your front door the other day, and I saw you doing it. (laughs) Oh, you've got to love everyone, but you don't. We've got to be an example to these people, and we have to love them. Now, it's going to be from the square bashing and the training that we are going through as a fellowship that all of that will come till every one of us knows how to deal with young believers. That's the purpose of this. May I say that sometimes my heart has just been smashed when I've seen the way some Christians have dealt with young believers. Do you know, I've seen some young believers who should have been encouraged, who should have received that which is positive. And certain Christians have hooked onto them and do know they've had long sessions of negativism, long sessions of gossip, long sessions of slander, long sessions of all the problems in the world. And here are these young Christians, only two in the Lord, only three in the Lord. And whether you like it or not, you are holding up their progress in God. It has been one of the things that I found righteous anger rising up inside of me about. These youngsters who should see nothing but love, who should see nothing but the positive, suddenly they see the black of everything. It's totally wrong. Which of you who are parents would actually say to your three-year-old boy, we got terrible financial trouble, you know? Or, uh, I'm sorry, dear, but uh, it's, uh, we've got ter- terrible trouble. I don't know what we're going to do. The poor lad will end up with a nervous breakdown. So many young Christians have been put off the gospel because foolish, stupid, self-indulgent, appalling Christians have handled them wrongly. And those Christians will give an account one day. And I warn you all, our sacrifice in witnessing doesn't end with a person's salvation. It's got to continue through their formative years until they're strong enough to hold up under the pressure, which of course comes because we have an enemy which of course comes because we have an old nature within us. We've got to see these people through. And I would ask, if you have done this ever, repent in the name of Jesus. If you haven't put these people off the Lord altogether, very often you will have caused them to limp through their Christian life for the rest of their lives. They will have a jaundiced opinion of what Christianity is about. It is disgraceful, such behavior. All right, having said all of that, and my time is running out, Can I just say one other thing about evangelism and about witnessing? Evangelism and personal witnessing 
is one of the ways to restore the joy of your salvation. I've known so many lackluster Christians who lack uh, the sparkle of the Holy Ghost simply because they've got used to their Christianity. And very often they're disillusioned, slightly depressed. I have longed sometimes to get a big coach, collect together all the disillusioned, depressed, down-and-out Christians I know, gather them together and take them to a place and start public testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, if one person actually came to the Lord through your witnessing to them, your life would be transformed overnight. I've seen it happen, you know. Someone who's really feeling, oh, you know, this Christianity is so heavy. Suddenly, a friend of theirs come to the Lord, they're all overjoyed. It's wonderful. And I would say to, to you, if you find your Christianity is lackluster, can I ask you whether you are being diligent enough in your witnessing? If you're not, this is a major key to see the joy of your salvation restored. Our message is one of reconciliation. So let's just go to Acts 26, and I'm just going to read this through. Here is Paul's calling, and it is ours also. Here is the Lord at Paul's conversion. Verse 16, this is the word I end on. Verse 16, 17, and 18. I would say this to everyone in our fellowship over witnessing. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Let that be our calling, and let's take it seriously as a fellowship. Next time, I'll be expanding this a bit more and talking about doing good in the world. God bless you all. Amen.